0: Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, The gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message.
1: The sermon this morning is entitled, a Renaissance, Reformation, and Enlightenment. Most of you are familiar with those three periods in the history of the world, and specifically of Western civilization. But I want to just look a little bit this morning at those three, of course primarily focusing on Reformation as we continue our look at the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses, October 31st, on the church house door at Wittenberg. 1517 we're going to be looking at number 16 this morning as we look at the necessity of salvation and Martin Luther's understanding of the necessity of salvation but as we before we get there i just want to remind you briefly that we did look two weeks ago at good king asa good king asa we looked at in second chronicles 14:15 and 16 we looked at him because he was a great reformer and there he is quite some time long before Martin Luther, and so we look back and we see there has been great need all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as well, and certainly throughout history of the Church. There's been need for reformers, and Good King Asa was a great reformer. God did great things for him, and he worshipped the Almighty and called others to do so as well. And then, late in his life, he seemed to forget a good number of the things that God had done for him. And so, we are challenged each of us to be reminded that wow. Even someone like good King Asa uh, needs reformation, needs ongoing reformation. This is why the reformers in the uh, 16th century adopted the phrase reformed and reforming. That they were recognizing, wow, the corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church, we reject and we embrace the gospel as it is rightly set forth in Romans one sixteen and the rest of the book of Romans, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's reformed, I understand that. But reforming would be the idea that, wow, that's going to continue to slip in our own lives, and certainly in the generation in which we live, and then in the next generation, and the generation after there, we're going to have to continue to be diligent, reformed, and reforming. And then the second thing that we looked at, after Good King Asa, we looked at the reality that God's glory shines forth in impossible circumstances. It was impossible circumstances. When you think about 1517, and the uh, monstrosity of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, and yet God brings about this Reformation uh, only through a few people initially, and yet it does take root and catches on. And we looked at Isaiah 9 as we reflected upon those uh, remarkable circumstances and the impossible circumstances, if you will. Isaiah 9, of course, is the passage of their prophecy regarding the Messiah, that unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, and that word wonderful again is the word impossible. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Christ comes and fulfills all of that in further dark circumstances. And so God's kingdom continues to march forward. And so we, we, are not, uh, we don't give up uh, hope when we see dark circumstances as we do here. In our current age of 2017, we see very dark circumstances, and yet our good God is with us all the way. We're going to be looking this morning at Renaissance, which is characterized by learning. We're going to be looking at salvation, which is the very key element of Reformation. Reformation is characterized by salvation and the liberty that we have in Christ from guilt and condemnation and damnation. And then we'll be looking just ever so briefly, at license, the enlightenment is characterized by license, a liberty to the extreme and to the self-centeredness. We you stand on honor the reading of God's words? We turn in our Bibles to Numbers 16. Numbers 16 is a very phenomenal passage of God's judgment set forth. These, the people of God, still wandered in the wilderness at this time because they refused to go in and take the promised land. And so God allowed them to wander in the wilderness until all of them who had left died, all of the adults. That's where we are. Korah is a Levite in this, and he doesn't like the defined categories that God has set forth. And he wants to cross over a defined category that God has set forth. And he begins to grumble against Moses and leadership, and he gets some other people with him, and quite a few other people begin to join with him. And they go to Moses, and they grumble against him, both in regard to the structure of the church the kingdom of God, and they grumble against him because the fact that they're in the wilderness, they blame it on him, that they're not yet in the promised land. And so that's the background. We pick up in chapter 16 at verse 19 today. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting against them, meaning against Moses and Aaron, if you will. So the congregation is, quite a large group of people are opposed now, and he's whipped a large group into a frenzy. They're all discontent. They're grumbling. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation. That means a physical manifestation, probably the pillar of cloud by day came down closer to them that was hovering over the tabernacle. Verse 20, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram.' Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into hell, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. And their households, and all the men who belonged to Kor with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to hell, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the two hundred and fifty men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar. Since they did not present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones that have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it with fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the people, between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were fourteen thousand, seven hundred besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. You pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, how little comprehension we have of your justice and holiness, of your truth and glory. Of your mercy, of your faithfulness. And yet again, page after page, we see it clearly in Scripture. And we walk away and then begin to worship an idol who is nothing like you and forget that it is you, not our idols, that we will stand before. God, we pray that you would help us to see the rightness of all your ways, the perfections of your holiness, of your order, of your sovereignty. Grant God that in Christ we would see your mercy set forth in his substitutionary doing and dying, and that we would recognize that we cannot add or take away anything from the great work of our great Savior. God, we are surrounded by people who do not understand these things. And they want us to accept and celebrate where they are and what they think. But we know they will stand before you. And so we ask, God, that you would grant us, anointed of your spirit, to be found faithful with your word to address and challenge. God, we pray that you would help us. Pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther is 1517, and he is posting of the 95 theses and the things that happened over the next 40 years, really, is what gives birth to what we call the Reformation. Prior to that was the period called Renaissance. The Renaissance was the 13th and 14th centuries primarily, to some degree the 15th century as well, certainly. Most of us don't remember too well what was going on at that time, but the Ottoman Empire was expanding tremendously. Constantinople fell in 1483. It was the last of the Roman Empire. And it fell in 1483 to the Muslims. And Europe was in great peril itself. But around that same time, there began to be a tremendous rediscovery of the dignity of man and of man's capabilities. Listen to that again. A rediscovery of the dignity of man and of man's capabilities. They began to read history and realize things that civilizations had done before. They looked around them and realized we're not doing on the same level of civilizations of the past. And they began to study those things and to begin raising their standards and what they thought they might be able to accomplish. And they began to study the very reality of their darkness and of learning. They began to re-examine philosophy and religion, a rediscovery of Aristotle and the use of reason. They invited the re-examination of long-held views and positions and perspectives. They were regularly studying the past and studying past achievements. And radical change came for art, architecture, science, music, debates, and religion. And I mentioned debates because prior to that time, there hadn't been a lot of debates. And that's the foundation for Martin Luther with the 95 objections that he has. He wants to have a debate. That's what he's doing. He said, let's talk about these things. And they began to do that just before his lifetime. And he is a product of that. Well, after Martin Luther, the Reformation, we're going to look at in just a moment here in light of this passage and what happened in Martin Luther's time. But Martin Luther comes along. We have this wonderful period of time called the Reformation. And for about 200 years, the Reformation takes off over Western Europe. And it really has a significant impact in almost everywhere but France and Spain and Italy. There's still a lot of Europe left. It didn't have a lot of impact in France or Spain or Italy. But in the rest of Europe, it did. All of Scandinavia and of Germany and of that region and certainly England had a tremendous impact, and over even toward parts of Russia. But the Enlightenment comes on a couple hundred years later with Voltaire and Diderot, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, David Hume, Immanuel Kant. And now they're taking the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, and it becomes happiness, and tolerance, and self-centeredness, and personal peace. And they began to look only at themselves, and the individual becomes far more exalted than any other person, and certainly more than God. It becomes very self-centered, their compasses are broken and pointing to themselves once again. And so we see a lot of darkness come back into the world just a couple hundred years after the Reformation. But, side by side with that, the Church continued and had a lot of impact, especially in Western Europe and in America. But now we're really seeing the withdrawal. We're seeing the light go out in regard to so much of the impact of the church and these other things. The Enlightenment and some of their thinking continues to go. So we want to go back and look at the, the Reformation itself, that period of time between the Renaissance, which was called the Rebirth, and the Enlightenment, and look and see a little bit about what's taking place. And what's taking place is this. Martin Luther is reading his Bible. He is contemplating eternity. And he is mindful of his sin. I mentioned that to you last week because it's critical that we ourselves understand that, that that's what Martin Luther's doing. He is mindful, and we're going to hear him say that later on in the Diet of Worms, he is mindful that councils and popes have contradicted themselves over and over again. And that if he's going to have any ability to stand on something that's trustworthy, it better be something entirely outside of himself and uncorrupted by men. And he says that's the Word of God. So he reads the Word of God. And as he reads the Word of God, he's constantly aware that eternity, eternity, eternity is set forth in the Word of God. You remember as we studied through the book of John, we said there are a couple of key themes. And one of them is eternal life. Eternal life. Martin Luther got that. But another great theme in the scriptures is our sin and the holiness of God. And Martin Luther got that. He read passages like number 16. And he trembled. I read passages like that when I was a young man, and I thought they were true, but I didn't tremble. Because I thought if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that. I was dreadfully wrong. I was dreadfully wrong. Martin Luther, though, understood. He looked at his life, and he recognized that he had a sin problem. And he recognized how loathsome in God's sight sin was and how just God was in responding to it. Martin Luther read about the fall and he understood the condition that we arrive in this world as enemies of God. He read about the flood and he saw God's just condemnation of the whole world and the deliverance of only eight people by a method that God had provided. He read about Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw their sin and recognized his own sin. He read a passage about a man gathering firewood on the Lord's Day. And the man was taken to Moses. And Moses says, well, let me ask God what to do with this. And the answer came back that the congregation should stone him. And Martin Luther thought, you know, I have misused the Lord's Day. And he trembled. And he read 1 Corinthians 6. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. Steve just read it this morning. He read 1 Corinthians 6. And he understood that there was great sin in the body of Christ, in the church, in the world. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters, idolaters someone worshiping God wrongly or worshiping someone other than the true God, described in the Bible, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And Martin Luther trembled as he contemplated his own sin. I told you on the back of your bulletin you have a hymn here by Martin Luther. It is the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther understood that the Ten Commandments did indeed represent not only the individual precepts of God, do this, don't do that, but that the Ten Commandments also represented the very principles of God, the character of God, and then they represent the person of God. God is like the Ten Commandments. They describe God's character and his nature. And so Martin Luther writes this, that people in his congregation could learn this and he is unpacking the fullness of the Ten Commandments before the Westminster Divines do in 1643. The Ten Commandments are the law which Israel heard in holy awe. And smoke and fire from Mount Sinai, the voice of God did shake the sky. Have mercy, Lord. He ends every stanza with, Have mercy, Lord, because he understands his sin. He understands the nature of God and of God's commands, and he never thinks to try to rewrite the nature of God or lower the bar of God's holiness. But as he contemplates it, he simply cries out, have mercy, Lord. I am your Lord and God alone, no other God but me enthroned. Put your whole confidence in me. Give me your heart, complete and free. Have mercy, Lord. In what you speak, bring me no shame. Do not misuse my holy name, but call on me in troubled days. Give me your thanks, your prayers, and praise. Have mercy, Lord. Respect the Sabbath of the Lord. Do not despise my holy word. But hold it sacred, precious, true. And hear my truth now preached to you. Have mercy, Lord. Give to your parents honor due. Be dutiful and loving too. And help them when their powers are few. So it shall go well with you. Have mercy, Lord. Martin Luther's father thought he was a fool and told him so, that he entered into the ministry. You shall not murder, hurt, nor hate. Your anger dare not dominate. Be kind and patient. Help. Defend. Treat your foe as though your friend. Have mercy, Lord. Be faithful to your marriage vow. No lust or impure thoughts allow but keep your body free from sin, with self-control and discipline. Have mercy, Lord. You shall not steal or take away what others worked for night and day, but open wide a generous hand and help the poor in all the land. Have mercy, Lord. Bear no false witness nor defame your neighbor and destroy his name, but view him in the kindest way. Speak truth in everything you say. Have mercy, Lord. You shall not crave your neighbor's house, nor covet money, goods, or spouse. Pray God he would your neighbor bless, as you yourself desire success. Have mercy, Lord. God gave these laws to show therein, O child of men, your life of sin, and help you rightly to perceive How Christ alone, you must believe. Have mercy, Lord. Our works cannot salvation gain. They merit only endless pain. Forgive us, Lord. To Christ we fly. Our mediator now on high. Have mercy, Lord. Martin Luther is a lover of God. He sees himself rightly, and he sees God rightly. And he's looking to see more of God, and looking to understand, trying to reconcile the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, and the mercy of God. As he's reading in Numbers 16, he sees the justice of God set forth very clearly. He recognizes that this is the hand of God, And he recognizes that the sin set forth in the first part, verses one through eighteen, is grumbling. Korah is a grumbler, and he not only is a grumbler, but he encourages many others to grumble. In fact, by the time we get to verse nineteen, it says the whole congregation had joined in him with the with the grumbling and the dissatisfaction with their good God who was giving them miracle bread every morning six days a week in a double portional fry. That was actually taking place on the day that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah. They gathered miracle bread that morning. Martin Luther recognized these things and thought, how do you reconcile this? He believed the the book of Numbers was an accurate portrayal of who God is. But as you look at this passage, he also noticed that while there is unspeakable judgment here, It says in verse 27 that they were warned to get back from the tents of Korah and Dathan and Aviram. And then it says, Dathan and Aviram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Then later on it describes that all of them go down into the grave, into Sheol, into hell, collectively. And then it says in verse 36 that they are given this idea of a warning. God said, Moses is told by God, these people have done very badly, but I'm a mercy-loving God. I want you to take their censers that they were offering in idolatry, their incense censers, pans, and I want you to beat them into a plating, and then I want you to wrap that plating around my altar, so that when they approach my altar, they'll see that plating, and they'll remember the 250 men who were idolaters. grumblers. And what happened to them? Because I'm a mercy loving God. And what does God do? God teaches clearly. He warns passionately. He corrects appropriately. And he restores lovingly. So Eliezer does exactly that. As he's doing that, apparently, as he's in the process of beginning to do that, verse 41, The next day, the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, so they're back. Now, first of all, how did that day start? That day started by gathering miracle bread that God was providing for them every day for the double portion on Friday, so they don't have to gather it on Saturday. So they gathered their miracle bread and ate breakfast. And on a full stomach came and grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And we pick it up here in verse... 41, Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. They're blaming what happened yesterday now on Moses and Aaron, or in a a sense really on God, but they know enough not to say directly on God, so they blame it on Moses and Aaron. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it. It had covered it the day before, you remember. And now the same thing's happening again. And the glory of the Lord appeared. And as we follow through it, as we just read, we see the reality here that Moses is mindful that God is going to strike. Moses remembers clearly what happened the day before, and he knows the nature of God. And so he before before he even hears that the first person is dead, and at the end of the chapter we hear that 14,700 are going to die on this day, not counting the ones who died the day before. Before Moses hears that the first person is dead, He recognizes this incredible irreverence and the inappropriateness and the justice of God that will surely come, and he tells Aaron what to do. He says there's got to be some atoning going on here. But God is a mercy-loving God. And he tells him exactly what to do. Go and get some of the incense and put it in your fire pan and then stand in front of the people. What is he standing against? He's standing against God himself in the hope that God himself will be merciful. And so, there is a large crowd here. There are 600,000 men who leave Egypt, not counting women and children. There are a couple of million people here. And many of them begin to die. And Aaron runs into the crowd, and he's holding that incense out. And Moses told him to get between the dead people and the living people, and he's pulling living people by the arm and jerking them behind me. and Get behind me! Get behind me. He's crying out to them and holding out that incense in the hope that God, who is a mercy will look to Christ in anticipation of his atonement and be merciful. So he's going through the crowd and people are running behind him as he says, get behind me, get behind me and holding out that incense to the almighty knowing that he could go as well. His sons have already died. Aaron's too old. His sons died in the tabernacle itself. It would have been a day of great chaos and a moment of great intensity when that was happening. Martin Luther looks at that and he wonders, how do you fit all this together? And he asks the question, why is holiness so hard? And then asking the question, why is holiness so hard? He recognizes that's grumbling against God puts his hand over his mouth and recognizes his great need of a great Savior. Martin Luther comes to the realization that if he is ever going to be saved, it will not be by his hand. It will not be by his hand. It will be by God, from God, for God. Martin Luther reads, as we should, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, And he sees the great writing of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 4. We're just going to look at two verses. Romans chapter 4 is the uh, emphasis that it is by faith. And he gives some examples of it being by faith uh, from the Old Testament. That we're saved by faith and not by any other thing. What he means by faith is he means it's outside of us altogether. It is outside of us altogether, and we simply look at it. This is the same thing that the Lord Christ is saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes and says, We know you're a man sent from God, for no man can do the things you do unless God be with him. What are you all about? The Lord Christ says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up and draw him into himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Luther is reading his Bible, remembering John chapter 3, and remembering number 16, and he reads Romans 4. What then shall we say? Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Martin Luther understood that he wanted to work, that he had tried hard to work, but he was transparent and honest enough to recognize that his work wasn't working. Martin Luther wanted to work. He had tried hard to work and to keep the commandments of God, but he was honest and transparent enough to recognize it wasn't working. Sin was mixed with all he did. And then he looks and he sees that indeed, as he reads on further, he sees examples of Abraham and others. And then he says this in verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, It's by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. Both of those things meaning it's not you, it's outside of you. It has happened in space and time. Christ has kept the commandments, and Christ has died in your place, Martin. But it happened outside of you, and all you have to do is look unto Christ. Verse 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. And he begins to contemplate the idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as he recognizes the completed work of Christ. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 says For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And Martin Luther recognized it says, to everyone who believes, not to everyone who works. To everyone who believes, it's outside of me. I lay hold of it and claim it, and I only grab hold of it with the fingers of faith. It's outside of me. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. When Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, he translated this last phrase slightly differently, and the Greek allows it. Listen to it again. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Martin Luther translated that into German. The one righteous by faith shall live. And the Greek allows that translation. It's a perfectly legitimate translation. The one righteous by faith shall live. The book of Romans began to open up to him as he began to understand these things, that indeed everything he read about God was true in Numbers 16. Everything was true about the flood. Everything was true about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was true about his own sin. And it was true that he wasn't going to be able to do anything about it. But God was going to be able to do something about it, and had done something about it in Christ Jesus. And it was entirely outside of him. Look in the front of your bulletin. It says this, Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. Many of you have heard me say that before. And here Martin Luther comes to understand this, and he doubts it again and again and again, but he knows that's what the Bible is teaching. The devil comes and tells him all kinds of other things about his sin. Not only this day, but every week and month thereafter. But he he comes back. Martin Luther, listen, comes back to the Word of God. He comes back to the Word of God and sees that that is, in fact, the way of salvation through the substitutionary atoning work of Christ. And he puts his confidence in the Bible. The Bible is trustworthy, and the Bible does preach about a substitutionary atonement. From the beginning of my reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, he says, but to give me the right understanding of his Word. The Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's Word, I know that I am walking in His way, and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion. He understands that we have to stand upon the precious promises of God's Word, and then reflecting about his ongoing sin, Romans seven, sin is mixed with all I do. He says, "I've held many things in my hands, and I lost. I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess." He sees the need for what he calls the alien righteousness of Christ. He looks to Christ, and his hope is in Christ constantly. The Puritans recognize this as they embrace what Martin Luther is saying, and they also recognize that we need to apply this to every area of our lives. We need to apply it to every understanding of the Scriptures, that when we see any passage of Scripture, whether it be about law or gospel or whatever it is, we recognize that all of these things about God are reconciled in Christ and in his gospel. We do not go back and rewrite number 16 and say God's not like that. But rather we look to the cross and we see that God is exactly like that as he is visiting his just and holy wrath upon his own son. And we see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see that God is just like that as he accepts the scents held out by the incense held out by Aaron and doesn't go beyond Aaron and everybody standing behind Aaron is safe. We see the consistency of that, that we who are in Christ will escape the judgment to come. And the Puritans embrace that and they begin to, they begin to say, well, everything we do, we look at the scriptures and we're going to apply the gospel to it. We're going to see how the gospel will help us interpret this passage. And that was a real distinction that they made as they sought to try to understand the whole of God's Word. Well, what is the application from this? The application of this is, first of all, to recognize the groundwork that gave uh, the foundation to the Reformation. And what was that? It was the Renaissance, which was characterized by learning. We must learn the Bible. We must learn the nature of God. Martin Luther is reading the Bible from cover to cover. He's contemplating eternity, and he's mindful of his sin, and he's trying to fit all the pieces together. We must learn the Bible. We must learn the nature of who God is, His character, His perfections, and learn who we are, and learn who Christ is and what Christ has done. We must be willing to critically and rationally examine long-held views and positions. Most of us know that's right, and very few of us do it. Listen to it again. We must be willing to critically examine, critically and rationally examine long-held views and positions. Martin Luther was going up against the world when he posted those 95 theses. He hadn't heard that lots of other people were asking these same questions in other towns and villages, thought he might get the debate going here in Wittenberg. He was going up against the world because he's looking to the Bible, and as he reads the Bible, he doesn't see what's going on in his church around him and in the kingdom of God, the visible church around him, and he's asking questions. And that's where we are today in the year 2017. We ourselves would study the Word of God and then help other people see the nature of who God is as He's revealed Himself. The second application would be studying the past and ancient achievements. That's one of the things they did during the Renaissance. They studied the past and ancient achievements. They actually looked back over to Egypt and said, you know, they had some engineering skills to be able to make those pyramids. They hadn't built anything like that during the days of the Renaissance. We need to get back to understanding just things they used to know already. We need to study the past and ancient achievements. We do that by studying the Old Testament, the past and ancient achievements of the Holy Spirit through the people of God. Studying the Old Testament and the New Testament and church history and reformation, the things that God has done through people to his glory before, as we read church history and Christian biography. It helps us a great deal, strengthens us to let goods and kindred go, and to keep our eyes focused on the celestial city. Another application is to understand that the central theme of the Reformation is salvation; that there is one thing needful. Quite often, I meet Christians from other cities, from other churches, from other denominations, and I was just—I was just telling Garrett just this week that when he's looking for a church, one of the best things he can do is ask the pastors and the leadership, what do you think are the critical issues of the day? And if they don't understand that salvation is at the top of that list, if they don't understand that right and genuine salvation and under that umbrella false conversion, if they don't understand that true salvation and false conversion are at the top of that list, you're probably in the wrong church and you keep looking. And there are other things that are critical issues of the day. We need to do that. But the critical issue of the day in the Reformation was salvation. On what basis is a man justified before God? How does a sinful man enter into the holy presence of God eternally? Salvation was the principal issue of the day, and it's the principal issue today as we talk to people around us. The third application is the understanding That we want to be careful like the Enlightenment. They went off the deep end on the other side and the Enlightenment began to turn liberty into license. The Enlightenment turned everything back on themselves again and happiness and their own personal peace. And we need to be careful. While we are saved by faith alone, we are saved for good works. We are saved to the glory of God. We're saved by God, from God, for God. And we want to read our Bibles and see that that's true over and over again. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Martin Luther understood the importance of this, and he wouldn't, listen, he wouldn't get caught up in other debates. People tried to get him to talk about other lesser important things, and he wouldn't do it. At his funeral, his disciple Philip Melanchthon preached the funeral, and Philip Melanchthon said, you know, Many people thought Martin Luther was rougher than he needed to be. And then he said, but perhaps, because of the roughness of the times, God saw fit to send a rough physician. Philip Alexander understood that perhaps it was just like Aaron out there in the middle of the people, and he was pulling people behind him, that life and death was at stake. And he was saying, get behind. Get behind the gospel. Get behind Christ. Get behind his righteousness. Let go of everything else you're clinging to. Eternal life, eternal destiny is at stake. Philip Melanchthon understood that. I told you before that Desiderius Erasmus is the one who debated him in the series of debates collected later called the bondage of the will. Desiderius Erasmus did not agree with him, but he said this about him. God has sent in this latter age a violent physician on account of the magnitude of the existing disorders. That's really where we are today. There is a magnitude of existing disorders in the year 2017 outside and inside the visible church. There is in football something called unnecessary roughness. But there is in life sometimes a need to be direct and blunt, clear and frank and loving. And to do it again the next day and the next day until people get it over such issues of salvation. Firemen and preachers and parents need to be clear about what they're doing. Because what they're doing is important. Lives are at stake. And saints need to be found faithful in the gospel. Calling people to ask good questions and to seek good answers about eternity. I told you back when the eclipse occurred that someone said this, the sun will burn out your eyes from 92 million miles away. And do you think to casually stroll into the presence of its maker? Martin Luther understood that God had already burned out the eyes of many people, Korah and many others. And he knew he was not going to casually stroll into the presence of his maker. And so he sought the will of God and the word of God to understand the gospel of God, Jesus Christ. Benjamin Watson says this, whereby the lie that feelings trump all else and that how one feels can only be accepted and celebrated instead of addressed and challenged. Jesus came to address and a challenge, and He calls us to do the same. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would bless us to see You as You are, to bow low and worship You in all of Your perfections as we come to be convinced more and more that You are that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. That everything about you is just and holy and pure and true and right and good and perfect. And that any and every conflict we have with you is ours. God, we do praise you for your holiness, for your wisdom and glory that has devised this beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. That when through grace our trust in Christ is, justice smiles and asks no more. God, we praise you that justice and mercy kiss in the gospel and person of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would bless us to comprehend this and to walk by faith to go forth walking and leaping and praising your holy name as we contemplate the riches that we have in Christ, the liberty that we have in Christ, liberty from our sin, liberty from the condemnation, liberty from damnation. God, we pray that you would grant an awakening here at River City and a revival, an awakening here in southeastern North Carolina. Lord, that you would loosen our tongues That we would sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. And yet with meekness. And fear. Gentleness. and Kindness. Clarity and boldness. God, we understand that salvation is of the Lord and we pray your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I remind you that we have the evening study tonight. We are continuing our study of what is biblical Christianity, what is Reformed. We had started two weeks ago to look at uh, the church, which I think is chapter 16 in the Westminster Confession. And we'll be looking tonight at our own church constitution as we continue our study of that at 5 o'clock today. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Give you peace. Now and forever. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us, and you, to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, don't do that to me, worship God, he did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God, focus on God, not the messenger, concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree, and we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see...